You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com tech. Hey everyone, this is Chris Spangle, host of We Are Libertarians, and I'm on the road this week. I traveled to Washington, D.C. for the Students for Liberty's LibertyCon, Lots of great speakers, got to see in the flesh people like Justin Amash and David Bowes, and I'm going to bring you some of the interviews that I did with students, I'm going to bring you some of the sessions, and I'm going to keep you updated on my travel because it was one heck of a trip. So let's get started. This is the first of my travel log, and this was recorded on Friday morning as I was racing to get a flight after my original one got canceled. Okay, so I was at the Cracker Barrel, uh, just waiting for the callback from American Airlines. Took two hours. My flight got canceled because of 70 mile per hour winds, uh, and I didn't expect that there would be a flight at all, and that I'm going to have to drive 10 hours. I still might have to, so I am racing from my apartment in uh, the south side of Indy over to the west side of Indy. Uh, it's probably about a 25-minute drive, and I have to be at the gate in 25 minutes. So I doubt I'm going to make it, but I'm going to try. If I don't make it, then I have to drive 10 hours to D.C., which would put me there around 10 o'clock tonight, I would imagine. So I really don't want to do that, but we're going to do what we can. We'll see. All right, I will let you guys know. I may be either on a plane in an hour or driving... 12 hours. Really hope I make the flight. While at the Students for Liberty conference, I got to talk to the admins, admin one and admin two of Liberty Memes. Everybody loves Liberty Memes. It is a great Facebook page that posts all kinds of hilarious content. And I guarantee that all of you listening at one point in the past have shared a Liberty Meme. So here is my interview with admin one and two of Liberty Memes. I am here with the Brains, is that the appropriate term? It's whatever you want it to be, my friend. Behind Liberty Memes, uh, Admin 1, how are you? I'm great, how are you? I'm fantastic, how are you, Admin 2? Muito bem, obrigado. <laughs> now I'm a little annoyed because the head of the ACLU, I wouldn't say annoyed, but I think it's a sign of the times. What did you say? I said, that ho, hoes ain't loyal. Okay, <laughs> so the head of the ACLU was speaking right before you guys. And then at the end of her talk, three times her audience shuffled in. And I was like, what is next? And I looked and it was memes. So you guys had three times the audience of ACLA. I don't know if I should be concerned or annoyed by that. How do you, how do you uh, what do you think? Well, we are in Washington, D.C., and there are a lot of black vehicles with tinted windows uh, driving around, and at any moment we could uh, definitely get shuffled off to a black site. Uh, we have one saving grace. We used to have an uncle in the CIA. He's still our uncle. He's still alive, but he's not in the CIA anymore. So uh, I'm concerned. If you're concerned, I'm concerned, too, because we might we might get disappeared. He's not concerned about our potential fate. He's, he's concerned about the idea that memes are more popular than the ACLU. Well, those guys were encouraging 
encouraging people to vote. That's what she said. She said, uh, can you commit to promoting uh, voting amongst all your friends? And that was interesting. It didn't get a lot of positive uh, response from the crowd. Just, you just assumed our interviewer's agenda. Did I just assume your agenda? I, I really don't have an agenda. That's why I'm not as popular as Liberty Memes. <laughs> <laughs> I should have more of an, an agenda. What agenda? We're a schizophrenic meme page. We post so much stuff that has no combination one thing with the next. It's absolutely ridiculous. There's 20,000 memes in only, what, five years? He lies. We have an agenda. What we want to do is promote open conversation no, we want we want to. I mean, we want to promote the ideas of liberty. We we became libertarians long before we made that page. Uh, I spent a lot of time reading on uh, you know LouRockwell.com and uh, Tom Woods and uh, listening to Ron Paul speeches. We were involved in the Ron Paul campaigns, and so what what we want to do is spread those ideas and also be funny. And it turns out that being funny is one of the best ways to spread the idea, especially to people who don't want to like read books. <laughs> Or people who don't want to be involved in politics itself, right. of influencing policy, of knowing politicians, of being part of a committee, of going door to door, or of voting at all. Right, just correcting people's mindset. I mean, what what's really important, uh, we, we don't, I don't foresee in my lifetime uh, a government that's going to respect individual liberties you know, and I think that putting putting off our goals as human beings until the government respects us is like, well, pretty much giving up. And so to me, what we promote is anarchy in your head. There was like a, a website called anarchyinyourmind.com or anarchyinyourhead.com. I liked that whole idea of, you know, I'm opting out of the state and I'm spreading the idea that whatever the government says in your head you, you just don't buy it. Just right. Don't be part of it, you know. And and just to wake people up from the idolatry of statism, that's that's a goal in itself that I think we do a lot. Yeah, I, I think it's one of, if we had a mission sta- statement, a real one, because I think we have one, but it sucks. Um, it's, it's taxation. It's, it's written. No, but... Um, <laughs> I think one of one of our goals for sure is to get people to completely make a mockery of the state and everything that the state does and everything that the state claims to be able to do and, and claims to be. And I think it's very important because when people stop worshipping the state or people stop relying on the state or people just immediately when they first think of the state, they think of ridiculousness, they're going to stop putting their trust in government and they're going to stop giving up their rights. Right. Yeah, well, we found it. We are libertarians because we're big meme fans. Uh, and thank you. Th- yeah, I you, thank you. He just took credit for memes. Thank you very much. Well, you know, it's what we do. I mean, uh, copy, <laughs> copying is not theft, though. Think. Copying is not theft. So if, you, if we make another one of something, then there's two of it. Yeah, you you got in trouble with uh, we are libertarians contributor Aaron Ewart for stealing one of his memes. Stealing. Yeah, he he took us to court and. Um, <laughs> Why are you laughing? This is like serious stuff, okay? Aaron has a very nice hair part, and I respect that. And um, No, the thing is that actually there's a lot of gracious donors of meme (laughs) material. There really are. We ask every day for donations, and we get generous response. Um, and that is, that's how the page grows. And I don't mean in terms of numbers. I mean in terms of the spread of influence. We can't think of everything. We do post OC every... Excuse me, that's meme talk for original content. We post every day. We post OC, you know, multiple times a day. But 
I get a feeling after 15 minutes of silence from Liberty Memes, hey, people are waiting to hear from us. So we end up posting tons of stuff every day. You know, we I can't to, do all that ourselves. I, I actually have people. to address this situation with Aaron, okay? We do a few things on our page. If we know who created a meme, we give them credit in the tagline when we post it. If we don't know who created the meme, we usually just post it. But if the quality of the image sucks and we want to rephrase something... Then it's a brand new meme when we remake it. Here's and we the, put our watermark yeah, on it. If I take your joke idea and I make a correct joke out of it, then, you know, that's my work, not See, yours. Here's the, the thing about Aaron. Aaron has stale memes. Listen, Aaron. It's a fine line. Your memes are like this dead air time we're about to give you. How many likes do you guys no, no, have? I like Aaron. He's an awesome dude. Well, don't do that to I'm us. I'm just kidding. That, air, that dead airtime <laughs> represented the essential functions of government. And now, how many likes? How did it? How fast did it grow? And how many likes do you have? So, okay, I, I'll tell you a little. Story. You have your theory. Wait. I'll have mine. All right. Go well, ahead. when we first were invited to uh, represent how our page had grown to be so huge, we had thirty thousand likes. Which is interesting. We were invited down to Texas to speak at the Libertarian Party convention. Who and, invited uh, us? What's his name? Timothy Martinez. Great guy. Good guy. Great guy. <laughs> Anyways, we presented like a meme slideshow and uh, what have you. But uh, where, where it really exploded was in, I think it was the same year, because that was early, that was like the spring. We, we went from thirty to 60,000 likes in the spring there. But that summer, this is the summer of 2016. Mm-hmm. We call it the summer of Zuck. Yeah. To, we uh, we hit 100,000 likes on July 4th of 2016, uh, and the summer of 2016 was a gold mine for memes because Hillary Clinton was running against Donald Trump for president, and those two, those two. So um, you know, when you post something criticizing one, uh, people who were against them latched onto the page. Um, if you posted criticizing the other, then the other way went. And actually what we would do, you'd criticize Donald Trump, and then and then when you criticize Clinton, uh, people would say, well, I, this is not what this page used to stand for. <laughs> like, yeah, it is. Um, so, but anyway, but we criticized both of them, and that really caught the pulse of the American population. People hate both of them. They right. really do. So just just expressing the frustration of these limited options that that helped, but what what he he's got a he'll tell you the story of the zuckening because it really happened to him more so. It was his post. Yeah. What'd you do? So the FBI director announced that he found like what? I don't know. We have what five hundred thousand followers almost. No. Probably about that amount of criminal violations by Hillary Clinton, and <laughs> that he wouldn't be charging her with anything. And. We posted a meme that said it was Hillary Clinton with her smug face. It's the best word I can come up with because there's probably some dirty words for it. She said, silly Americans, laws are for poor people. On our meme, she didn't actually say that, but she thinks it. Right. Anyway, that meme just went crazy viral. It went all over the... 35,000 shares. like 35,000 shares in the first day. It reached some millions of people. Probably like 10 million people in the first day. And that's, so that's a lot of people, you yeah. know, considering the population of this country and the population of people who would be actually paying attention to politics and who would share that. And how many people would see that before the 6 o'clock news that day? So before they even found out the, the FBI had chosen not to charge her... So we were Their making the news. Wrong about that. Well, anyways, yeah. go ahead. No, but, but <laughs> I mean, we were making we were making the news before the news 
talked right. about it. And that's a problem for them because they need to control the narrative. So it just got, they just shut us down. What they did was they blocked my profile for 30 days, which they didn't even give me a warning on that because usually they give you like a seven day, then a 15 day or something. This name was so day. offensive. Hillary Clinton saying silly Americans laws are for poor people. Just that. I don't even understand what, what content guy, like what community guidelines that actually even violate. They violates. never tell you. No, Half the time they don't even tell you which post, but in this case they just took the post down and they said you violated our standards. Wow. They don't tell you which one. So we got a message that day, both of us, that our page had been temporarily disabled so that they could scrub for further violations. Right. Which is weird. I never saw that before. And then our page got republished, but a whole bunch of our stuff was missing. Really? Stuff that had... He reported this to a friend of his who works for Breitbart, was it? I don't know. I actually for, what I, for no, something what I, else and it got picked I, up by Breitbart. No, no, no. What I did was I posted on the page that this was happening to us, and if anybody knew anybody in the press, then they should get in touch with them right away so that they could find out. Because this was only one week after Zuckerberg had a... Is that his name, Zuckerberg? I call yes. him Zuck so much, I don't remember his yes. real stupid name. So he... Uh, Jackass. Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> but... Um, he had just had a meeting with all these conservative leaders to talk to them about how he's not trying to control the conversation. Right. About he, he's not, you know, kind of uh, filtering out the conservative views and he's not censoring people and he's not doing anything like that. And just a, one week later, just Hillary saying, silly Americans, laws are for poor people, was enough to get our page taken down. And it's only increased with the Russia stuff. It's really a pretense to start censoring content and... I'm, I've been shadow banned on Twitter. I mean, I'm. We are libertarians is as close to libertarian centrism as you probably could, because what we try to do is explain the po- explain politics and the news to people from a libertarian perspective. So we're not like hitting you with philosophy. We're not radicals. Well, and we you get know, not, we get shadow banned. We get. It's, content. it's not fair because I come for confidence to prove this page not run by Russian bot, by real-life Russian. But that's the, it's, it's amazing that even the Daily Wire, a mainstream, milk-toast conservative site now, is being monitored by Snopes on Facebook. Yeah. I mean, what, where do you think that these platforms are going in the, because of conservative and libertarian censorship? Well, I want to make it very clear. Let me be clear, as our president from the past would say. I don't want people to think that, as libertarians, we're telling Facebook that they can't do what they want. Mm -hmm. They can. They're a private company. They can do whatever the hell they want. But as consumers, and this is how the market works, we have the right to raise awareness about the things that they're doing. And uh, when they're doing something like that, we're not saying that they're government censorship. I mean, they might be in collusion with the Hillary campaign. Mm -hmm. At, At that time, I'm pretty sure they were. Um, but it's not, it's not really censorship. Well, it's, I mean, they're allowed to do that if they want to. Well, when the Southern Poverty Law Center is the fact checker for Facebook, yeah. they basically are in bed with uh, mm. an ideology as opposed to. And well, that's, it's well, really I mean, that's the thing about grotesque. America, though, is like the, our fascist system is so messed up in this country that almost every company is in bed with the government somehow. Right. And when that company does something to you, it's the government doing it to it because they've got all that federal funding for it. Right. So, I mean, in a way, you could make that philosophical well, argument. In addition, there's an element of self-censorship and self-regulation and I mean the government doesn't really need 
to clamp down that hard on a populace who has trained themselves to avoid controversy. You know, and even even in business, there's a sense where controversy is bad for business. And so when your business model is an open platform for anybody to say anything, uh, well, they're afraid that someone's going to say something that shakes things up and they don't want to be held responsible for that. Well, well, that's actually what happened with the Facebook situation is we made so much hay about this innocent, um, e- this innocent meme being taken down that it... Made it was world a news. Meme. It was Hillary Clinton. It was the <laughs> on Drudge Report. After you see the word Drudge Report, it was center column, top of the center column oh, wow. on Drudge Report I think from the Bryce conservative story. Facebook page. Though that pissed me off. I'm like, we're not. Gonna what are you going to do? <laughs> anyway, um, you got a, how many likes out of that though? A lot. Quite a lot. In the in the following months, we jumped from fifty thousand likes to seventy five thousand. Suddenly, one hundred twenty thousand. I don't even know where the next eighty thousand went to get to two hundred thousand. It was just like right. so fast, yeah. and it was all because. We didn't like Hillary Clinton. Or and I was Trump. kind of a problem with wait, that. Wait, there well, there's no, kind there of a problem with it. One. We didn't like Trump, but we went after Hillary so much that all these people who were really charged up about hating Hillary just came to our page. And now we've got a lot of difficulty cleaning house because there's so many it Trump is, supporters is, that we have to get rid of. It's hard to tell how many in those days were actually Trump supporters who latched on to us for our position of Hillary Clinton because we were against Trump the whole time uh, versus how many libertarians, and this is something that I try to sort of gauge, how many libertarians are getting sucked into conservative politics again by means of people like Donald Trump? Or how many are getting sucked into SJW liberalism because they're like, well, things that you should be free to do are getting criticized by the right. And so as soon as you've got an enemy in the right or you've got an enemy in the left, you start to unite yourself with the, the opposing side in American politics. You get sucked back into that paradigm and I'm really I want to be on guard against that I am not a right libertarian or a left libertarian I think that that's just a path right back into statism yeah and those tax cuts are seductive you know like when when Trump does when good Trump comes out it is seductive because you go you just put in a huge massive tariff on aluminum and steel and he killed the market with it and then the second amendment stuff yeah and and it's the second amendment stuff and his his MAGA people are still cheering him on making excuses for him this is fine this is 20 dimension chess. <laughs> well, we're hitting levels of chess that shouldn't dimensions of chess that shouldn't even be possible, okay? <laughs> the uh, you almost hit on an argument that I find to be self-censorship too because a lot of libertarians we do believe in property rights. Property rights are foundational to libertarianism. And yes, these platforms do have the right to do whatever they want. But so often libertarians are afraid or not afraid, but are unwilling to make noise because they just go, well, that's their property right. Instead of going, my free speech right matters. The ability to use these quote unquote free speech platforms, you've really got to make noise about this stuff because what about your right to free speech? Yes, on these private organizations, it does matter, but... It, it does matter that they're private organizations, but you really should stand up for your right to free speech and well, say we're not going to do business with you if you're going to exactly, continue to censor us. Exactly, and part of the uh, platform that I would like to, uh, you know, the part of the agenda, I guess, that I would like to push is to use your freedom while you have it, to use your freedom wherever you can find it. You know, use it or lose it. In fact, in a lot of cases in America you uh they'll they're going to lose their freedoms without ever realizing that they had them your freedom to think independently your freedom to speak your mind are things that 
once they're lost, Americans may not even realize the value of what they've lost because they haven't learned to think for themselves. They haven't right. learned to speak their mind. Um, so, yes, we have a platform to speak, and it is provided by a, a somewhat, at least to some extent, private organization. So, yeah, take advantage of that. You know, speak out while you have a chance, and maybe we'll get shut down. Maybe we'll get zucked tomorrow. Like, that can happen. Black-sided. Black-sided. <laughs> All right, so final question. Indefinitely detained. Favorite Favorite meme. If you can even choose your favorite child. You know, we're not doing this. Really? No. Uh, right. Maybe well, we are. Favorite, It'll take me uh, a second, though. I have to think about that. We really have thousands and thousands of memes on our page. Um, what? There's always those ones where you just lose your shit the first time you see it. So <laughs> there was one that you I know, really like. Liked. It, it's not even your favorite. It's just like this. this was... Right there the whole time, and there's, nobody. There's one else. I wanted to tell you about earlier when we were talking about the campaign between uh, Hillary and uh, Trump because they were so unpopular, the two of them, and it really, it really showed that the American people see themselves as like hamstrung between two terrible choices. So, so there's a kid with a fork and an electrical socket in front of him, and he thinks to himself, uh, Trump or Hillary, top socket or bottom socket. Mm. Like, what's the difference? You know, it's up to actually, uh, Facebook took that one down, too. They said it might promote self-harm. Oh, my God. And I, I was like, self-harm? They actually, when I, I had to log back in, and uh, it showed me, like, uh, suicide hotline numbers and stuff <laughs> because of promoting self-harm. And I was like, self-harm? I, I can see how if you're, like, a total idiot, you might think it's a good idea right. to vote. How about you? Anything? No, I, I, what did I tell you? All right. <laughs> okay. You're going to violate right. my nap? No, no, I'm just kidding. You can keep asking me because you have the freedom of speech to do That's that. That's right. But I really, there's so many that I really love, and I, I just can't choose between any of my I, babies. I'll tell you what I really like. I, I've posted this as our um, background picture many, many times. The Bellamy Salute. If you're not familiar with the Bellamy Salute, look it up, because Americans were freaking Nazis, and when they discovered that the Nazis were making the same hand gesture uh, that we were using, we collective speech but anyways that American school children were being forced to use when they saluted the flag and recited the Pledge of Allegiance that was written by a socialist uh, they said oh this doesn't look very good so they changed the position of the hand but anyway there's a there's a meme that has all these kids saluting the flag looking exactly like little Nazi children and it says skycloth demands promises <laughs> <laughs> alright well thank you uh, one last question yeah. The first time you get invited to speak and people start treating you like I've had this where you're like getting invited to Radio Row here. I'm like, somebody thinks I'm legitimate. What are <laughs> they doing? Like, what was your reaction when you got invited to start speaking at some of these conferences? I'm going to tell you something. I tell myself every day when I look in the mirror, you're not important and nobody cares what you have to say. And that is usually depressing. But lately it's been very reassuring because I like to think that I'm still below the radar and that the CIA is not going to disappear me. But uh, I don't know anymore. What's this now? <laughs> <laughs> hey, I, I lost him after like 10 minutes. No, it's yeah. okay. No, he's on his phone. It's okay. Well, you made me look at my phone for memes and to tell you what my favorite was. And then I got really offended he's because you want me to choose between my babies. want to hear your opinion. You know, he was making speeches, incidentally, which I wrote. Uh, you didn't write all of them. Stop this. I did a lot of the writing. Um, for the Ron Paul campaign, uh, or actually both Ron Paul campaigns, he was very uh, active politically. And I'm more of an introvert. It doesn't come out in the you know radio interview. But I am. 
I, and and so I did the writing and he did the reading for the most part, you know, delivering speeches and stuff. So he he was kind of a celebritarian before the page, actually. Yeah, people kind of cared about what I had to say, but what I had to say was actually written by my older brother over here. <laughs> so that was something. We we had some really like gigantic gun rallies that I spoke at after uh, Governor Cuomo passed the Safe Act, and it's my whole Liberty thing, Fest. my whole thing at the Safe Act rallies was or the the pro gun rallies was to um, preach nullification Mm -hmm. and these people had never heard of that they just were like who's our governor candidate who's our governor candidate that's all they wanted and what happened was that whole movement got co-opted by Donald Trump being the guy who was pretending he was going to be our governor candidate uh, just so he could bow out like at the last minute and help uh, Andrew Cuomo get elected basically Mm. by by taking away any other political action those people could do that year it was just like too late and uh, so there were like 15,000 people at that rally and that was pretty good Um, eventually they stopped inviting me because I was promoting something that didn't have to do with political action but of individual action they didn't like that very much that's exactly what I'm thinking when I I hear that we're invited to speak somewhere or that somebody cares what we have to say I mean my, like I said, my message is to opt out of the state. Like, in your mind, get rid of the idols of statism in your mind. And, I mean, when I hear that we're more popular, that's what I'm thinking, is that, you know, that message is spreading. People are seeing that the hypocrites in politics do not govern your life. And, you know, we get an opportunity to spread that a little more. Yeah, you guys are the modern pamphleteers. Yeah, so. well, I see myself as a political cartoonist of the 21st century. All right, thanks so much. I appreciate it. Admin 1, Admin 2, go like Liberty Memes if you haven't already. All right, thank you. Thank you. Have a good day. So next up on my travelogue, I get to the airport in Philly. I make the plane and end up getting stuck in Philadelphia. So this is first recorded in the airport and then at the Amtrak station. All right, so I am in Philly. So I am waiting for the train, which comes in 30 minutes. And then I'm going to take that down to the 30th Street station. And then I'm going to get an Amtrak to DC. So funny thing is that everybody else had the same idea. So I either have to pay $200 to get on a quick train. I think I have to go through security or something to get on a quick train or I have to um, pay 58 bucks, but I have to wait till like nine tonight. I'm probably gonna pay the extra money just because I don't need to pay the light bill this month. It was the craziest landing I've ever had. Uh, everybody in the plane was terrified because you see the tower, there's, you can't really see the tower. There's no visibility coming in. And we didn't see the ground until we were almost touched down. Uh, and he kept slowing the plane down. And when he touched down, everybody cheered because we thought it was going to be really rough, but it wasn't. It was pretty good. So I am officially taking planes, trains, and automobiles today. All right, well, that's where I'm at. I'm in Philly for either the next eight hours or 45 minutes. We'll see. I'll let you know. So I didn't have a choice. I'm taking the bus. I got the very last ticket on Megabus out of this place. I'm in the 30th Street Station in Penn. So there are no flights and no trains out of Philly. And Washington, D.C. is not accepting any flights or trains. So hopefully Megabus doesn't uh, let me down because I paid $39. Damn it. I met one other guy. He's going to Washington, D.C. He just got a Megabus ticket for nine, he thinks. 
but he doesn't want to stay here till nine. Met up with so get this. Uh, so he was with a girl. I don't remember her name. And so the three of us rode on the train over here. There's no cars. All the cars are checked out. And it's a pretty treacherous drive, apparently. So I'm stuck in Philly till 6. This girl is with us, and she go is going to Long Island from North Carolina. And we're kind of standing lost in the middle of the 30th Street station. She is... Uh, a another girl walks up to us, about early 20s. She goes, are you guys trying to find an Amtrak ticket? I am too. Yeah, where are you going, Long Island? Where are you coming from? North Carolina. Oh, I go to school in North Carolina. Me too. What college did you go to? Me too. This girl in the jean jacket. This, uh, the girls that go to the same college and live in the same town found each other in the middle of the Philadelphia train station. If they're lesbians, it'd be so romantic. So uh, she just got a mega bus ticket for $12. So the train ticket was going to be super expensive. I haven't looked at any news, so I don't know how bad the storm is, but apparently it must be pretty bad if... The entire eastern seaboard is shut down and only buses are running. Listen. Uh, they've got one right there left. I don't know. Uh, I haven't checked yet. All right, so that's where I'm at. While at LibertyCon, I recorded a couple sessions. The first up in part one is Susan Herman. She is the president of the ACLU, and in this presentation, she is speaking about free speech. One quick note, I didn't get the first 30 seconds of this speech, so it does begin a little awkwardly. Take a listen. John Adams was a Federalist, and Thomas Jefferson was a Democrat-Republican, and even though they managed to agree on the compromises in the Constitution, they and their parties agreed on very little else. So I just wanted to remind us that at the beginning of our republic, we did not have you know, this kind of brotherly love. We had a great deal of hyper-partisanship, which we did get past. So here's a picture of what Congress looked like in those days. Okay, look familiar? <laughs> okay, not exactly civil discourse to debate the important issues of the day. So hyperpartisanship continuing, um, when John Adams was the president, the Federalists, in addition to caring about whatever issues they deeply cared about, uh, were also quite concerned about, to coin a term, fake news. So under the Adams administration, you probably have heard that Congress passed the Sedition Act of 1798, and the highlighted language, they prohibited uh, any false, scandalous, or malicious writing against the government of the United States or either House of Congress or the president. What the Federalists meant by that was Democratic Republicans were not allowed to criticize what the Federalists were doing. So here is one example of a Democrat Republican who was prosecuted under the Sedition Act, certainly not the only one. There were quite a number of prosecutions. And the Federalists won every case where they tried to you know, prosecute someone because at that point they controlled all three branches of the federal government, right? Adams was the president. There was a Federalist Congress. And thus far, all the judges who had been appointed were pretty much pro-Federalist. So Lyon had written in a newspaper. He accused John Adams of uh, having an unbounded thirst for ridiculous pomp, foolish adulation, or selfish avarice. That was a crime. So for that, he was convicted and thrown into jail. And the Federalists were so determined to silence him that while he was in jail, he asked for a pen and paper, and they wouldn't give him a pen and paper. 
Um, nevertheless, you could say he persisted. He did get a pen and paper, and he wrote up an account of his Sedition Act prosecution as well as conditions at the facility, which he managed to get published. So I think that gives you a little glimpse um, into how in 1800 or so, 1798, around then, around the time of our first regime change, politics were every bit as partisan and bitter as you could possibly imagine today. So how did the country get past that and hold the republic together after 1798? Well, after Thomas Jefferson became president in 1801, the Sedition Act was repealed. So score one for Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson believes very much in the freedom of the press. He says here, were it left to me to decide whether we should have a newspaper, a government without newspapers or newspapers without a government, I should not hesitate a moment to prefer the latter. So Thomas Jefferson, as we know, uh, very much believed in the First Amendment, and he was, in fact, if you know about the age of the Sedition Act, he was the author of the Kentucky Resolution, where you know Virginia and Kentucky both took the position that the Sedition Act should have been considered unconstitutional as a violation of the First Amendment. But at the time, of course, the courts were not going to go there. For one thing, the courts were all Federalist, and you know, they, it was their law. They believed more evidently in the results than in the process. And for another thing, the First Amendment at that point did not mean very much other than the paper it was written on. It was a cause of political complaint, but not as we know it today, as a source of rights where you could go to court and say, I have a right to dissent, I have a right to criticize the government. Well, as one of the principal founders of the ACLU, Roger Baldwin, was always very fond of saying, he says, no civil liberties battle remains won. So this was certainly true. So around the time of World War I, when emotions were very high about the war, and some people were opposed to the war, there were people who were opposed to the draft, and Congress passed a Sedition Act. And look at the highlighted language there. It was a crime to willfully utter, print, write, or publish any disloyal, profane, scurrilous, or abusive language about the form of government of the United States or the Constitution or the military or naval forces of the, of the United States. Now, among the people who were prosecuted and convicted of a crime for expressing dissent about the war and the draft, this man, just one example, Charles Schenck, you can see at the top of his pamphlet, he says, long live the Constitution of the United States. Wake up, America. Your liberties are in danger. Now, it was Mr. Schenck's theory that the draft was indentured servitude. He thought it violated the 13th Amendment to draft people. Well, you know, he lost that one. Nobody agreed with that. But he badly lost because he was prosecuted and convicted of a crime for expressing that dissenting opinion. So in 1920, the ACLU was formed. And a lot of the reason why the ACLU came into existence was because of concern about the suppression of dissent and the lack of freedom of speech, sort of across the board for everyone. Now, the 1920, you'll note, is the year in which women got the vote. So from the beginning and ever since, the ACLU has been an extremely odd coalition of suffragists, you know, the women who just got their vote and were then trying to figure out what to do with it. Progressives, libertarians, anarchists, um, Republicans, Democrats, you know, liberals, conservatives, just all sorts of people. And what they had in common in forming the ACLU was that rather than just defend my rights and the rights of people who I define as being like me, the right thing to do as an American is to defend the right of free speech for everybody, the right of free religion, that there should be liberty and justice for all. And that means that everyone should have the same rights that I think that I am entitled to. Well, 
ever since, um, yeah, and then I could say because of that, the ACLU has always been nonpartisan, and our defense of the First Amendment is always content neutral. We do not only defend speech or assembly that we agree with or religion. We hold that everybody has their own right to make their own decisions about that. The First Amendment has always been a very central part of our work. So this is Roger Baldwin, the founder and um, first executive director of the ACLU. And one thing that he liked to do to dramatize the um, importance of freedom of assembly, of demonstrations, and how there shouldn't be limits on freedom of uh, assembly, was he liked to stand up on top of a car. I couldn't actually find a picture of him doing this. I've once seen one, but I couldn't find it. And he would read the First Amendment very dramatically and sort of dare the police to arrest him for reading the First Amendment. You know, pretty good optics, right? He was good at public relations, too. So the idea was to try to convince the courts to uphold the First Amendment so it would be more than just a parchment barrier. So here's a very early pamphlet. This is 1921, where there's a statement of what the um, ACLU thought the First Amendment should mean, quote from Thomas Jefferson on the cover. And the basic idea was to do a lot of litigation and to convince the courts that sometimes they had to stand up and say, sorry, even if you have a sedition act, or some law that says you can't say that or it's a crime because that's disloyal, that the courts should stand up for people's right to dissent and have a different point of view. Well, there was a lot of litigation that if we had more time I could tell you about during the 1920s and the 1930s that led to the formation of the First Amendment as we know it today as an actual right to talk back to the government and to say you can't stop me from saying something that disagrees with what my neighbors think or something critical of the government. And I think one of the best signs of the progress that we made was a case in the middle of World War II involving these two little girls, Marie and Gathy Barnett. They were students, uh, school students in West Virginia, and they declined to pledge allegiance to the flag because their family were Jehovah's Witnesses. And what their parents told them was that it was against their religion to pledge allegiance to the state as opposed to to God. So, as you can imagine, the West Virginia school authorities were not too happy with this decision in the middle of World War II, and so they suspended the girls from school and then told the girls' parents that they were in big trouble because their children were truant. Okay, catch-22, right? So what's amazing to me is that in 1943, in the middle of World War II, with West Virginia and the government saying, people cannot refuse to pledge allegiance to the flag, that's disloyal, that's treasonous. You know, people have to pledge allegiance to the flag. And of course we can punish students and make them pledge allegiance to the flag. The Supreme Court disagreed. Um, one of the things that people were saying at the time was that they, there was concern that the Pledge of Allegiance to the Flag looked a little bit too much like Hitler's salute. And so Robert Jackson, writing the opinion for the court, says, you know, the West Virginia versus Barnett, if you ever need great quotes about the importance of the First Amendment, the court was really there. You may know that um, Jackson went on to become the prosecutor in the Nuremberg courts. But rather than um, pursue anything that he said in the Barnett case, I think this is a great statement of, um, that Jackson made about the basic concept of our First Amendment. Every person must be his own watchman for truth because the forefathers did not trust any government to separate the true from the false for us. Okay, so that's the basic idea, you know, content neutrality. And ever since then, the ACLU has attempted very earnestly to, as Roger Baldwin said, defend everybody regardless of whether we agree with people's you know, political views or religious views, etc., um, We just fight for everybody's right to be their own watchman for truth. 
So ever since the uh, Tinker case in 1969, where Mary Beth Tinker was told that she was not allowed to wear a black armband to school in protest of the Vietnamese War, we've also done a lot of cases involving students' rights. And T-shirts are very often at the heart of this, right? What kind of T-shirt can you wear to school? Uh, the ACLU affiliates, we have 50 affiliates around the country, and they have represented students with a whole range of political opinions, uh, left, right, none of the above. Uh, my favorite example was actually in Virginia, where the ACLU of Virginia told a principal that he could not suppress a student demonstration uh, because he was concerned that it would be controversial. And the demonstration that the principal was trying to um, suppress was an anti-ACLU demonstration. So, you know, if anybody tells you that we're hypocritical, you know, I beg to differ. <laughs> uh, you'll find a lot of evidence on our website that really we do represent all different points of view. So in addition to representing students in terms of what they're allowed to say and views they're allowed to express while they're physically in school, we've also had a tremendous amount of litigation about speech on the Internet, again, with the idea that a student should not be punished for saying something critical of a teacher or something like that um, outside of school, even. Now, in the No Civil Liberties Battle Ever Remains Won, I want to tell you a little bit about what's happened recently, because the fact that we, in fact, established that you have a First Amendment right to dissent and you can go to court doesn't mean that everybody has learned to respect difference of opinion or controversial speech. So we have currently, we have litigation going with the MTA in the District of Columbia right here. Anybody take the metro while you're here? Okay, you notice there are ads up there? Do you know that the ad policy of the MTA is they will not accept controversial ads, anything that might you know, cause a difference of opinion. They don't like that. So um, in addition, we have a lawsuit against them um, for refusing four different ads, one by Milo, one by uh, an abortion group, um, one it was somebody else, but one of them was an ad that the ACLU itself wanted to place. And that ad would have replicated what you see here in Times Square, where you can see in the front it says ACLU, we the people, what you can't really quite see well enough is that on either side of the ACLU banner and then above, what the ad was was the language of the First Amendment, the text of the First Amendment in English, in Spanish, and in Arabic. And at the bottom it says the Constitution is for everyone. Okay, it was a great thing in Times Square. We won awards for it. The news was all over it. You know, somebody had a great idea in terms of the Constitution is for everyone. Well, according to the MTA, when we wanted to put up the same ad in the Metro, the First Amendment is for everyone. Just the first, literally, just the First Amendment in three languages. The MTA said you can't put that up; too controversial. So, does that sound like Roger Baldwin getting arrested for reading the First Amendment? You know, pretty ridiculous, right? So, um, I think that the First Amendment today is really under siege um, by both the federal and state governments in a number of ways that we need to be concerned about. Uh, the there were, there, you may not have been following, but also locally, since we're in D.C., the administration, the Trump administration, had brought, has brought quite a few prosecutions against demonstrators during the president's inauguration. Long chapters about that. And the president has also been saying all sorts of things that do not exactly accept the Thomas Jefferson view of the importance of freedom of the press. Uh, frankly, disgusting the way the press is able to write whatever they want to write. So we have not gotten to the point where there are sedition laws the president is not able to prosecute people who say that he's you know, full of pomposity and avarice. He can't do that at this point. But I think that these statements are undermining kind of public support for freedom of the press. I think having this kind of attitude to the uh, freedom of the press come from the White House is of concern. 
And let me say again that you may have been reading the ACLU does bring quite a number of lawsuits against the Trump administration, but that's where we believe that President Trump has done things that are unconstitutional. And on the nonpartisan side, let me say that we have actually sued every president since we've founded since 1920. <laughs> Thank you. Barack Obama used to complain about us. Well, why? I thought you liked me. Why are you so, you know, so it's sort of to us, it's sort of like your mother said to you, it's not that I don't love you, I just don't love your behavior. So we never support or oppose candidates, but there is behavior that we oppose, and I oppose this behavior. I think it is not a good thing. You know, and, you know, we should have learned that lesson from John Adams, that it's not a good thing to try to silence your critics. Um, okay, so I was telling you before that you probably will hear from people on the right that the ACLU is so hypocritical that we really only defend left-wing speech. Well, you probably know that the ACLU of Virginia... I'm sorry, but I, didn't, I only started like 15 minutes ago. We started quite late, so I'm not going to end in, in, in five minutes. Oh, they told me I had 25 minutes to speak, and I have been speaking for less than 15. Um, okay. Um, okay, so we represented the, um, Mr. Kessler in Charlottesville, uh, and so we were criticized. We, I think that's a kind of a good rebuttal to people on the right. We do represent right-wing speech as well as left-wing speech. We've also been criticized by people on the left who say that the ACLU has been betraying our progressive heritage. Uh, and to them, I say, here's a pamphlet from 1934 where the framers of the ACLU said, you know, you have to be content neutral. We will defend Nazis who want to speak about their views in 1934, not when they're armed. Uh, so, we represent the white supremacists, we represent Black Lives Matter, we are very concerned about anti-protest bills that are proliferating in about 17 different states to try to chill expression, but, and I think the last speaker in this room just talked about this a little bit, that one of our greatest threats to free expression is not just the state or federal government, but ourselves. That there are so many people, especially of younger generations, who want to be protected, they don't want to have to listen to speech that they don't agree with. Well, I think that's a problem, and so what I want to ask you to do and tell everybody who's not here, too, is are you libertarian and civil libertarian enough to defend everybody's right to free speech, even if you don't agree with it? Raise your hands if your answer is yes. Okay, if your answer is no, we'll talk across the hall when, when it's time for Q&A. Okay, so that's point one of my, my proposal for how we're going to keep the republic together. It's more speech. Listen to everybody's speech. Don't demonize people who are saying things that don't agree with you. Point number two, uh, another point of the framers in terms of promoting the blessings of liberty was they believed that it was tremendously important to have a Republican government, to have the government be by we the people, because history shows us that if you have an autocracy, liberty is very much at risk. Quote from Alexander Hamilton on the same point. So the, one of the main ideas of a Republican government, this is from the Center for Civic Education in terms of um, you know, what we expect of representatives in a republic. The third thing tells us that representatives are supposed to help all the people in the country, not just a few. Now, that stood to reason because at the beginning of the republic, almost nobody could vote. Women couldn't vote, people of color, people without property. So the representatives understood that they couldn't possibly just be beholden to their base, the people who voted them in, because they had to represent all sorts of other people, too. So what's important here is that the um, Constitution sets up a republic, not a democracy. One of the places where you can see the difference is in the Electoral College, 
We all know that um, the Electoral College allows somebody to be elected with, um, without a majority of the popular vote. And if you have any questions about why that's a problem, you can read a piece that I published which talks about why the origins of the Electoral College are really in slavery. It was really to allow the states, the, power, the, the slave states, uh, you know, more power than would have been their due. The ACLU has opposed the Electoral College for 50 years. It's not partisan for us. We don't look ahead to see our Democrats or Republicans going to win. We just think it's anti-democratic. Many other um, things that are happening today are traceable back to the fact that the Constitution also left it to the states to decide not only who could vote, but what the rules should be about voting. So the states recently have been using that power to gerrymander, to try to put a thumb on the scale so that the people who are in cannot be voted out. And that, to me, you know, again, nonpartisan. I don't care whether it's Republicans in North Carolina who have gotten a state that's just about equally divided between Democrats and Republicans and used to have a 7-6 delegation in Congress. Now they have 10 and 3 because the Republicans gerrymandered the map. And the, Republic, the um, Democrats in Maryland have also gerrymandered. So it seems to me that the next principle that we need to agree on is that there should be neutral rules about voting. And nobody should be able to put a thumb on the scale by rigging the rules of voting in a way that will advantage their party. Again, getting past um, hyperpartisanship. Um, I'm going to skip over the examples since we started late and we don't have a lot of time, but there's this um, whole uh, felon disenfranchisement, which has been a tremendous distortion to democracy. Starting with Jim Crow, this is from the Memphis Civil Rights Museum and shows all the different kinds of things that were done to try to prevent the freed slaves from voting. We have all these restrictions on voting today, and even some of them that sound neutral, in fact, make a difference and distort the vote tremendously. So one very important campaign that the ACLU has on today as part of our people power, community organizing, is a campaign to let people vote. And we have a number of different states in which we just think that everybody should vote. Again, total nonpartisan. We're, we're not trying to rig the scales in favor of the Democrats or Republicans. We encourage everybody to vote. Okay, so that's my second challenge to you. Are you libertarian and civil libertarian enough to want to encourage everybody to vote, whether they agree with you or not? Raise your hands if you are. Okay, if you're not, again, across the hall, we can talk during the Q&A. Okay, now, as in the First Amendment area, the threats to democracy are not only from governments, state and local, they're also from ourselves. Now, I hope that you are shocked by this. This is who voted in the last midterm election. How many of you are in the age group of 18 to 29? Okay, 16% voted in the last midterm election. That means 84% did not. Okay, who's willing to get out there and tell people, all your contemporaries, they should vote? Okay, regardless of who they're going to vote for, everybody should vote. Again, we have to get past the partisanship. So the last thing that I want to tell you is that the third idea, a third idea that the framers had for how we could keep a republic together despite the fact that we all disagree so vigorously about so many things was the idea of civic virtue. Now, they meant a lot of things by that. Here's a few different definitions. One thing they meant is everybody should vote and should take responsibility for what's happening in our government because you let the government go, you let the government become an autocracy, you're not going to have liberty. So to me, if you want to have both liberty and equality, I don't believe that that's a zero-sum game, but I think we cannot have both without something like civic virtue or another way to put it is I think what the French call fraternity. Our vision of fraternity would not be everybody has to be the same and be French. 
I think our vision of fraternity is everybody gets to be who they are, right? So I wanted to end with Lin-Manuel Miranda's revision of who the framers are in a way that includes everybody who is an American now. So I want to remind you of the three-part program of which I would like all of you to tell everybody who's not here of what I would like to do. This is my ask. Number one, will you promote the First Amendment? Promote everybody's speech? Not just if I agree with it, I'll promote it, and if not, I won't. Okay, number two, will you promote everybody's right to vote, whether or not they're going to agree with you on the result? And number three, will you promote conversation? Will you talk to people who might not agree with you? Will you encourage other people to talk to people they might not agree with? Will you encourage people to find ways to have conversations instead of just yelling at each other or retreating to our own little echo chambers of only the people who agree with us? So um, if I had time to flip all the way back, I would flip back to that beautiful portrait of Benjamin Franklin with John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. And I would say to you, I think what we have to do is we have to try to get past our partisanship to get back to the spirit of that lovely painting where people, Adams and Jefferson, who fundamentally disagreed about so many different things, were nevertheless able to agree about our fundamental values and find a way to put what they agreed on into the Constitution. So that's my ask for you. Thank you. Now, I didn't record this one in Washington, D.C. I recorded this one over the phone after I had returned. This is a young man named Matt Geiger, and he runs a website called 71 Republic. Now, Matt is 16 years old, and the way that he talks and the way that he presents himself, you would think that he were much, much older. He's very well-spoken, and I would not be surprised if we saw young Matt become president of the United States as he wishes. So check him out and check out his site. Here's our interview with Matt Geiger. Well, I'm ready to go. Oh, okay, sweet. All right, so what do we need to cover? Uh, well, I just kind of want to know about, about you and your site and what you're doing and how you feel about the libertarian movement. Okay, sure. Um, Pretty good question. Yeah, well, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna start there. I'm gonna do a little intro. So, so I'll I'll, I'll lead okay. the discussion. So here we go. Now, okay. how how do you say your last name? I'm terrible with last names. Geiger. Geiger. That's what I thought. Like, but, as encounter. Okay. I am here with Matt Geiger. Uh, Matt, hi. Welcome to the program. Hey. Uh, wait, are we, are we live right now? Yeah, no, we're not, we're not live. Let me do a better intro. Oh, yeah, I was just making sure because I thought it was on Thursday. I'm sorry. No, um, are you, now okay. are you the founder of 71 Republic? Yes, I'm, uh, well, I'm technically I'm the co-founder. There, there were a handful of us. Um, okay, let five me. Five to be exact. Okay, I just wanted to, because I, I tripped up because I was like, I don't want to say founder because I don't know that for sure. So, uh, all right, here we go. I am here with Matt Geiger. He is one of the founders of 71 Republic, which is a libertarian news site. And Matt, how old are you? I am 16. 16 years old. So uh, as I traveled out to Students for Liberty, I wanted to talk to someone who is engaged in the libertarian movement and is uh, a student, not a college student. So you're, you're what, a freshman or a sophomore in high school? Junior, junior high school. Junior, okay, sorry. Uh, <laughs> now, you have a really pretty site. This is a really impressive site, 71 Republic. Can you tell me what that is? Yeah, so um, the 71 in the name stands for 1971, which is a pretty pivotal year in politics. 
Um, not only is it the year that the Libertarian Party was founded, um, but it also was the year that Nixon shock happened when uh, we were taken off the gold standard. Um, and it's just kind of a, a relevant year because, you know, it, it's very symbolic of the, of the Libertarian Party, the Libertarian movement, because, uh, you know, the Vietnam War was taking place during the time and there's, you know, anti-war movements. And it's just it's a very it's just the, 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 not only is the year significant, but just the cultural surrounding behind it is also just as, as significant as the year itself. So we kind of put that together and we you really can't name your site 71. And so we figured, you know, we live in a republic, the United States. And so we just put it together, and it sounded kind of catchy, so we just ran with it, 71 Republic. So you're saying we. Who else is involved, and, and how did this come together? Okay, so um, brief history. Uh, back maybe in late summer 2016, early July, I mean, uh, early August, late July, um, a couple of my friends, now when I say friends, I mean online. I, I, these people are, are not local. Um I had a friend who was interested in politics from Kentucky, um, and uh, he had some friends from Texas. And basically what, what happened is we just kind of brought a bunch of our friends together. We started setting this up. And over time, it, it kind of the, – the vision for 71 Republic kind of came together. Um, by the time this thing got kicked off, so June 10th, 2017, so almost a year ago, about 10 or 8 or so months ago, um, there were five of us that were technically managing the project. Um, two from Illinois, one from Texas, one from California, and me from Maryland. Um, and, uh, you know, that's, that's kind of how things got kicked off. Um, and that, that, that's how it came together. There, now, in addition to uh, the, the five people that kicked this thing off, we were surrounded by a ton of, you know, friends um, from around the country that were, that were teams as well that were willing to write for us. So we had maybe 20 people back in the project to get going, and we had about $500 in funding that I had raised uh, for, with the help of some of my libertarian friends. That's, so that's kind of how this thing got kicked off. So would you describe it as a news site? How would you describe it if people have never gone to the site? Sure. Um, I would describe it as a, uh, a a news and politics site. Now, that being said, it's it's pretty open. I mean, we cover things outside of those those two aspects. I mean, we cover stuff. You know, we, we do book reviews. We do movie reviews. We cover sports sometimes. But if I had to generalize it, it's it's really just... Um, the combination of trying to report news from an unbiased manner and then having a different spin in our editorial pieces that you usually wouldn't find on the internet or would usually wouldn't find in corporate media, I should say. So are most of your contributors Gen Z or under 21? Uh, yeah, there's only a handful of us that are actually over um, 18. So uh, one of our biggest writers is over 18, Spencer. Um, he's 31. But besides that, I mean, most of us, are between the ages of 12 and 18. Wow. So how to have a high school student start talking about Nixon, uh, that's a level of nerdiness not seen since I was 16. <laughs> and I say, that, I say that with love. So how did you, how do you know so much at such a young age? I mean, tell us your origin story. My origin story? Yeah, were you, were you, well, were you spawned out of the womb reading Rothbard? I mean, what's the deal? Uh, so yeah, when I was born, I actually came out with a copy of, uh, the law by Cassiet, <laughs> so I already had that start. <laughs> but, um, seriously, it's, it's really mostly attributed to social media. Um, my parents have been interested in politics, you know, like, well, just not like a, a huge interest, but, you know, they would watch the news and whatnot. And so I caught on and I, uh, when I came around to get my first phone or just cellular device, I, uh, I started using Instagram. 
And I figured out what a libertarian was and I just kind of did some research and I was just kind of following along. And, uh, and by the time I was in eighth grade, I started calling myself a libertarian. Nobody had any idea what it meant. Um, I really didn't understand what it meant to be honest, but I just, I thought it was cool. And, and I remember I was in eighth grade, uh, Ram Paul announced he was running for president. It was like April 7th, April 8th, around that time, 2015. And, um, I remember listening to it in class. Um, I had my little iPod and I ran the, the, you know, earbud through my sweatshirt so no one could see. And I was just listening during class. I was listening to him announce his presidential campaign. And I was really into that whole thing, you know, the, the Rand Paul, Ron Paul. I mean, I had watched a ton of videos on YouTube. I'd started reading a ton of books by them. Um, and the Fed is, is one of the first books I read. And so from there, I just kind of really took interest and I started following, you know, all these different libertarians on Instagram. And I started just doing some more research and I just kind of, it all kind of came together. Um, but if I had to attribute it to one particular source, it would, it would just be Instagram, social media. Um, that's, that's what got me into it. If it hadn't been for social media, I would have never know what libertarianism is, uh, at all or the party for that matter. Yeah. Back at, before the internet, everybody had newsletters. And I mean, could you imagine a time <laughs> where I was thinking about this this weekend because I went to the students for Liberty, Liberty con and I was I was watching David Bowes, and I was thinking, isn't it amazing that I know about David Bowes and the Cato Institute because of social media, because of the internet? And it, he was talking a little bit about social justice warriors and some of the changes in social media. And I thought, man, what are we going to have to go back to printed newsletters that we mail each other? <laughs> because that's how it that's how it was uh, in the seventies, eighties. That's really how the movement was was started. So you're, you, when did you decide to start an actual news site? It's a lot of work, and trust me, I know. When did you actually – what is the purpose of putting this website out? Okay. Well, um, I had my own blog when I was a freshman in high school. Um, asked my dad for $15, bought matsblog.org or some, some sort of domain, domain like that. And I would just kind of every week – after school, uh, I would come home and I would just kind of throw something up. It would be like 250 words, 500 words, nothing, nothing crazy, but it'd just be like my thoughts kind of written down. Um, and then I, uh, I, I, I started to see it get a couple of views here and there, and it was, it was pretty cool. And, and I, I took a really big interest in um, the work that I was doing, and so did other people. And it was for the first time I felt like I had a, a voice and that you know people were listening to me, and that was, that was pretty powerful. And so what I did... Um, was I continued to grow this website, and with the help of some of my friends coming along, like I said, uh, they supported me, and uh, we just it, the vision just kind of culminated. Originally, we were, we were supposed to, and this is all written in the about section of the site. So, seventy one republic dot com slash about. Got to put that plug there. But um, the way it worked is, we just originally wanted it to be some sort of podcast where we all kind of came on and just kind of talked for half an hour and threw it out there and see what, where it went. Um, but, you know, I had a friend who was really interested in business, and uh, he said, hey, we can make this a business. It's not that hard. I would help you guys out. And I said, sure. And so really, it's just kind of a culmination of people that were specialized uh, in different aspects, albeit specialization at age 15 isn't really much of a thing. <laughs> but I mean, they, they they had an idea of what they were doing, I guess I should say. And so um, the vision just kind of came together. It went from podcast to site to business. And um we, we really wanted to get out there. And so that's kind of the story behind it. But the reason why, the reason truly why 71 Republic exists is because not only do you see corporate media, so like NBC, 
um, CNBC, Fox, etc. Just it's it's a lot of um, it's a lot of analysis and a lot of um, commentators and not a lot of journalists. There's not a lot of Walter Cronkite left in the world. So that's one of my big things is, is to just bring back news. If you want to read what's going on in the world and not get it through a filtered perspective, then that should be your prerogative and you should be totally allowed to do that. And that's one of the reasons why we started it. The other thing is that when it comes to these commentators and these analysis, they're, they're usually just, it's just a mouthpiece for either the Republican or Democratic parties. It's just your conservative viewpoint and your liberal viewpoint, just to put it really simply and to oversimplify the whole thing. There needs to be a different viewpoint. Um, in this country, people vote R&D because there's only R&D on the news. There's only R&D in politics. Nobody hears about L. And it doesn't even need to be partisan related. It can just be the fact that there are no other viewpoints that come from a different perspective besides the conservative, the typical conservative and the typical liberal. There needs to be an alternative viewpoint. And so we primarily propagate the libertarian viewpoint, but we're also open to other viewpoints that aren't covered in your traditional, uh, your traditional corporate media. So the two main reasons why the site was started was to allow people to view their news unabridged from opinion and to allow themselves to divulge themselves into a different opinion that they may not hear on the, the TV. And so that's, that's our two big reasons, two, two pillars, if you will. That's great. Yeah, you, you and I go hand in hand in terms of what we're trying to achieve. I mean, this, this podcast is really about giving people all angles of the uh, actual story and fighting propaganda at every turn and making sure that people get the information that they need to understand the actual stories that are going on from a libertarian viewpoint. And I'm, I have served in the Libertarian Party, and I vote Libertarian, but I also vote Republican and vote Democrat when I go into the polling place. So I, I've become less partisan— especially over the last couple of years. I could never be a Republican or Democrat again, and I'm skeptical that the Libertarian Party will work personally. Uh, but I wonder if, if you... I've noticed that there is, in millennials and Gen Z, there's a real skepticism of any political party. It really is based around the individual. You know, Libertarians love Justin Amash, and they love... Rand Paul and Thomas Massey, all for good reasons, and just aren't really that enthusiastic about joining the Republican or the Democrat or the Libertarian parties. Have have you noticed this trend? Where do you fall in terms of partisanship, if anything? What what are you seeing amongst your your peers? Okay, so firstly, myself, I am technically. Because in the state of Maryland, you can register before you're illegally allowed to vote. You register at 16. So I registered a couple months ago. I registered as libertarian. Um, and the thing is, is that I personally have served in official positions within the ELP. Like I've, I run my county affiliate. I started my county party a couple years ago. Um, I've helped out with social media. I started the Libertarian Party Instagram page and their Snapchat. Um, and I, uh, I've been a really big movement or a really big piece rather in the Libertarian Youth Caucus. So I've served in a handful of positions here and there, and I, I know my way around, I guess you would call it the, the inner workings of the Libertarian Party. Um, but in terms of what my peers see, uh, it's, it's interesting. A lot of kids and really a lot of people, I mean, you can, you can say that almost anybody really is a libertarian, but when you apply a particular ideology to it, like for example, if I were to read a quote from Thoreau to any just normal person, 
most times say like eight out of 10, nine out of 10, they would say that that makes sense. I agree with that. And then you say, well, this opinion is X and the X is an ideology. Then they just shut it. They, they, it shut, they just shut down and they just turn themselves off. So particularly, particularly with my peers, rather, a lot of them have registered independent. We had the, the voter registration drive at my high school and all my friends were going up and registering independent. Um, and it's mainly because they, one, they don't know. Uh, that's a big thing is that they really just don't know where they stand. They're still figuring out their, their political beliefs. But two, they, the, the, the idea of being independent is a really intrinsic part of uh, being youth, being young. Um, and so that's, that's kind of where a lot of the, the independence takes place in. And I think it's all been emboldened by social media, like I said. So you might not have seen very much of it in the, in the 70s and 80s because those teenagers were still following in the footsteps of their parents. But by the time you have social media and teens can actively communicate with teens all around the country, then they start to form their own beliefs, right or wrong, uh, you know, factual or not. They're, they're thinking more independently at a younger age, which is why you see such a huge surge in independent registration. So personally for me, I'm a bit more partisan, although I'm starting to step out um, because I have kind of been a little bit turned off by some of the things that have been happening within the party. But as for my peers, it's really just a combination of traditional societal norms combined with the social media aspect it really just makes a huge impact and it changes the game completely what do you make of the social justice warrior mentality do you see a lot of that in high schools or is that really just a college thing i mean how i would imagine and i've talked to several high school students where this has gone on in their their high school where you know everything's offensive the majority of the kids they say just kind of roll their eyes and go well they just want attention uh you know i don't how much discussion has there been about around free speech and the lessening of free speech amongst a certain part of our electorate so in high school um it's it's not it's different than college for sure um i actually haven't been to college i really can't say but um (laughs) With high school and, and my classes and my students and my peers, um, a lot of it is kind of a herd mentality. Now, ironically enough, the area that I live in in Maryland is actually super conservative, which is pretty ironic. Um, so there's a lot of, you know, very, for lack of a better word, there's there's just a lot of country folk. There's a lot of people that are very traditional, rugged, hard people. So they're pretty conservative. You know, the kids that will show up to school with Trump flags on the back of their truck. But there's also a large contingent of people that would align themselves with the Democratic Party or consider themselves liberal. Um, and there's, there is a lot of restriction. Uh, a lot of it is just kind of, uh, how do I put this? It's, it's excitement. Uh, it's, it's combined with just like in, the, the feeling of emboldenedness and, the, and the, the feeling of power. A lot of, a lot of the people that I say would align themselves as a liberal, there's a lot of great people that are open to discourse, but it's very, it's very like, it, I'm trying to put this in a, in a good way. Basically what I'm trying to say is that it's not, it's not as nearly as extreme as what you'd see on YouTube if you search SJW or go on Twitter or anything else. It's just very, um, it's, like, it's like the beginning stages. You start to notice people that are kind of turning themselves off, people that think a certain way with no facts but, but just feelings to back up their evidence. Um, and people just kind of shut themselves off. And what they do is they put themselves in these groups that agree with them, and, that, and that's kind of how it comes together. So I just would really say that instead of high school just being the same thing as college, with the same atmosphere and the same attitudes, I'd say it's all cultivated there. Um, because public school naturally has a very, very strong tendency to coddle children. Um, and and it just it's kind of incubated there. Just the idea of 
the world revolves around myself and the idea that you must think this way. And if you disagree, it's kind of hard for me to handle because a lot of discomfort has been already been banned in the classroom or has been limited because the, the, the teachers themselves have much fewer rights in the classroom than they did in previous decades. So I'd say it's really just, it's incubated there. It's not that obvious if you weren't really paying attention to it, but it's definitely started in public schools. And I'd say that it's really the root of a lot of our problems that we have today is just the schooling system that we have in the country. Yeah. And I, I've been working on a theory as I talk to various Gen Z kids that the next generation, the, the one after millennials, are really going to be far more conservative and far more religious than my generation, especially the older millennials, because it's countercultural. When I was in high school, it was countercultural to be an atheist. It was countercultural to to be liberal. But now it's countercultural to be conservative, and it's countercultural to, cultural to be religious. Am I on to something, or am I just an idiot? Um, I would, I would say you're, you're right. I mean, historically you look at, uh, baby boomers, right? I mean, they're pretty much the exact same thing as Gen Y or millennials now. Um, it's all countercultural. So you're right in saying that. Um, but the thing is, is that I would say that there is one wrench in in the theory, right? So if, if all, 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 all things being equal, right? If everything was, was the same, then you're correct. Um, but the one thing that does throw a wrench in the system is the current state of society. And so, um, or just the current state of, of the generation. And what I mean by that is, is what are the important and relevant figures that exist and what dictate um, the discourse and specifically politically. And so having a figure like Reagan in the 1980s was huge for youth and having a figure like Trump in the 2010s is huge for youth. And so really I'd say, if, if you have a boring, bland political leader or um, boring, bland just leader in general that doesn't really emit much difference, then you're correct. But if there is somebody that changes discourse or that is often talked about or is the center of attention, then the countercultural shifts from the generation prior to the person in power. And so that's kind of what we've seen a bit with Trump and a lot of it with my uh, with my peers is just they're being countercultural to the to the Trump presidency and administration and those that support it. And so naturally they kind of align themselves more to the left. Um, but at the end of the day, like if being all things, if we're like going to be completely honest, it's not that hard to convince young people what they should be thinking. So that's a bit kind of kind of authoritarian to say. But what I mean by that is like if if any actual political party with a good marketing campaign that actually understood youth wanted to go ahead and get a youth base, they could do it pretty easily. Um, I mean, I had my, my, my friends shouting privatized schools last year and like literally running teachers out of, out of the, the testing rooms when they were taking standardized testing and, and just having, the, I mean, I, had a, I, have, I have a libertarian club in my school with 50 kids in it. It's, it's not hard to do. You just have to understand the message and fine-tune it for, for youth. Um, and that, and that is, that's just the, the, the overarching thing. So, yeah, you're correct. Um, and what you're saying, but if there is a political leader that causes or that stirs the pot, then it typically shifts to that political leader, if you get what I'm saying. So you said you had 50 kids in your libertarian group. It's not that hard to get kids to show up if you can if you can speak to the youth. I'm sure that a lot yeah. of our listeners probably have trouble speaking to the youth or understanding exactly how to do what you've done. Can you break that down for them? 
Sure. Um, so I'm going to try to put this in the in the simplest of terms. So basically, what it is is you need to find out what youth um, are geared towards. So what what piques their interest. And I'm going to be completely honest. One of the biggest ways I've been able to bring people in is through individualism. And so what I mean by that is I kind of show them their current state and I ask them to step back and look around it and ask if they really enjoy it. And obviously the answer is going to be no. And so what I'm saying is that you, you have to you have to hit school. Schools is a huge one. Kids naturally do not like school and that kind of coincides with not liking authority. And so what else involves authority? So a big thing is, is drugs. And so I, I've told them, I've, I've said, look, if you want to be free to, to do what you want with your own body, if you want to be free to make your own choices, then this is the way to go. And, and I said, really, look, look around you. I mean, is this where you want to be spending your day? Do you want to be told what to do and what to think consistently every single day for seven hours? If not, then join me. And that, that's kind of how it works. You just need to appeal to the, to the natural intrinsic rebellionists within, within youth. Just the feeling that things need to be different. Um, Obama did it. I mean, look, look at his look at his the, the whole the whole slogan for the Obama 08 campaign was change. When people expect and think change, then they will join your movement. So basically, you need to find what piques the interest in the change, and that is authority. And so you need to you need to explain to them that authority. Um, well, without becoming an ANCAP, but you know what I mean. You have to explain to them that um, with more individualism. X, Y, and Z happen. And so basically what I'm saying is, is that you need to get the change and you need to find what makes them think that change. And, and really it leads down to making their own personal decisions for themselves and reforming the education system. That's great. Yeah, Matt, you're really impressive. You're really well-spoken. Uh, I think a lot of our listeners are going to feel the same way. And if they want to get in touch with you, how can they get in touch with you? How can they follow? Let me ask you this before we go. What do you want to do? Because if you continue to do what you're doing, you're going to be an absolute monster by the time you're my age. Because you get those reps in, you get that 10,000 hours, you're just going to be fantastic at this. You've got a natural talent for it. Uh, so I, I would encourage you to stick with political commentary because you're very good. <laughs> you're, you're better than I am Thank at you. 16. So you're, you're someone to definitely watch in the libertarian movement. Well, I appreciate it. In, in order, what were you saying? So, what would you like to do when you grow up? <laughs> <laughs> what would I like to do when I grow up? Um, I feel like you were probably uh, born grown up. Like you're like Ben Shapiro. You you just were born uh, a forty year old man talking about the uh, the problems with authority <laughs> and how we need to reform the system of this allowance. Uh, I'm doing. X Y Z. My labor mom is worth more one nickel more an hour. <laughs> <laughs> well, in a way, that can really be a blessing and a curse, though. Um, I mean, yeah, I I, I kind of miss out on a lot of things because I'm really focused towards all the things that I'm doing right now. But uh, what I want to be when I grow up, um, well, I have an I have a very ambitious goal, and that goal is to be president. If I had if I could ever do if I could do one thing by the time I die, if I can look back my entire life. My one goal is to be president. And the reason being behind that, and I kind of thought about this a long time ago when I started to kind of foray into politics, because before that I've been really, really interested in weather and I loved meteorology and all that sort of thing. But when I started becoming interested in politics, I said to myself, um, oh, sorry, my landline is ringing. Um, Wait, what? You have that. a landline? <laughs> yeah, dude. 
Oh. All right, here. I'm, I'm going to move away from it real quick. That <laughs> won't happen when we're on air, by the way. You're, you're fine. You can't, be... you can't hear it. Okay, good. Anyways, um, damn, I feel like still the landline. I just waste the money. But anyways. Um, <laughs> do you have the landline or do your parents have the landline? My parents have the landline, but there's one in like every room. So <laughs> it went off all, all over the place and it was hard to think. Anyways, uh, where were we? Yeah. Uh, what I want to be when I grow up. So yeah, basically what I was saying is is that with with meteorology, you can help a lot of people, right? You mean you can inform them of impending storms, you can inform them of um, what they should expect when they go outside, which is great, which is extremely helpful. But I don't consider um, an occupation useful unless it helps people, obviously. So I thought, what is the best way to help people? How many people can you help at once? And like, what's the maximum amount of people you can help in a certain occupation? Politics. It is the only occupation where you can affect every single citizen in the entire country, and if not, almost everybody in the entire world at once. If you're president of the United States, you basically control the world economy, you basically control the world's foreign policy, and you control almost every aspect of governance in the United States, which is wrong, <laughs> which shouldn't be the case at all. That per- you shouldn't be that powerful that you can basically manipulate the world's economy at, at um, the you know, touch of a finger to... Uh, I guess the imaginary Fed button. But what I'm saying is, is that you can reach all 320 million Americans um, e- e- easily, really. It- it's it's just the only occupation I can think of that you can really affect the most change. And so because of that, that is the greatest way to leave an impact and to, and to make the world a better place for you know my children and my grandchildren, which is weird saying it right now. But, <laughs> you know, that's that that's really that's really why I aspire to be in a position like that. Now that being said, it's super ambitious. So what I would like to do besides that is to continue my business. Um, I run two businesses. This is just one of them. Um, I like to continue both of those. I like to continue working in the political aspect and the political field, um, and to just further liberty. If I can do one thing in life, it would be to further liberty and allow people to actually make decisions for themselves and to live their lives unabridged from a centralized government. So that's that's kind of what my goal in life is, is to just kind of add more liberty here and there. And if I can make it to the presidency, then add liberty in a lot of different places. Excellent. Well, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Now it's shameless self-promotion time. Where can people follow you and yeah. where can people follow 71 Republic? Okay, so um, our website's very easy to find. Just type in 71republic.com, the number 71, followed by republic.com. Uh, on Facebook, it's facebook.com slash 71republic. On Twitter, it's twitter.com slash 71republicmedia. And um, we're also on Instagram at 71republic. If you want to email me personally, what you can do is go to 71republic.com and go to the contact section and leave a message um, on there and make sure to specify that you're trying to reach Matt and then I will get back to you personally. So that is how you can reach me and that is how you can find what we're doing. And um, also, one last shameless self-promotion, we do accept crypto as a form of donation. So we accept 13 different types of cryptocurrencies. So if you have any of those 13 cryptos, feel free to donate any of that to us. (laughs) That's it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Matt, and definitely somebody to watch. Yep. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks, Matt. That was great. So you're a fantastic interview. I'd love Go ahead. Well, I appreciate. I appreciate. It. I do need to be a little bit more directive, though. I I was like all over the place half the time. That's what I felt like. <laughs> not at all. So no. I'll kind of, try not to be. Really, I felt like I was kind of confusing. Like I was kind of saying a lot, 